Over the last several months here, we began um, this series on the Gospel of John with this theme, life in Jesus, the Son of God, the very one we sing about today, is the one that, that, that the book of John, the Gospel of John, is all about. John was a disciple of Jesus, and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded these things from the life of Jesus for us to read, that we would be convinced of this, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would find eternal life. And so I invite you today to turn, if you haven't already, to the book of John, and we're going to go to John chapter 3, and um, we're going to look at this passage today that deals with man's greatest need in John 3, 1 through 10. It's really the beginning of an interaction that Jesus has with a teacher of Israel. And so we're going we're gonna to split it up into two parts. We're going to look at, at really the interaction, the, the major part of the interaction that takes place this week, and then beginning in verse 11 next week, we're going to look at the discourse that Jesus takes uh, from his conversation uh, with Nicodemus here uh, to go on and, and, and further unpack this. Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Father, we thank you for this few minutes that we have set aside today to look at your word. And what we ask today, that you would quiet our hearts and our minds. Undoubtedly, many of us have a lot of things going on in our lives uh, between work um, or school or relationships or projects um, or just, just uh, appointments and the cares of this life that are pushing in and crowding in on us. And Lord, we just ask that over the next few minutes, you would just take away these distractions, that you would give us hearts to hear your word, that you would open it up to us, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it, and that we would see the need that is met in each of our hearts and souls by Jesus. Lord, to the one who may be here today who has never never begun a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, would you continue to show them that you invite them to that, that you are the only way into eternity. And for Christians, Lord, would you again fill us with the awe and the wonder of what it is to have a relationship with you with Jesus. And may you challenge our hearts and our lives as there are undoubtedly things in our hearts and lives you are trying to root out, you've been trying to root out for 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 much uh, for, for a long time. And Lord, we just haven't submitted our lives to you. And Lord, we pray that you would again hammer the truth of the gospel home and our calling in you home 
that we may live in a way that would honor you and please you. Lord, I just pray that everything that's said and done over the next little bit here would honor you and glorify and lift you up. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you were denied access to something because you don't have, quote-unquote, you know, the right credentials? You ever been in that situation? Right, or maybe, maybe you, you've been in a situation the other way where you enjoyed access to something because you did possess what you needed to possess. And let me tell you just a little bit of, of my own experience with that. When, when I was a youth pastor in South Carolina, right after, uh, not long after my wife and I got married, we didn't have any kids yet, and I took on an assignment on Friday nights covering high school football. And I, I really love football. I love, uh, I especially love Friday Night Lights. You know, I, you'll find me out here a lot of times uh, when the Beavers are, are have home games. You know, we go out there and, and cheer them on. And um, I really enjoyed that. I, I had the opportunity to go and, and cover. We, we were doing social media coverage of a team that was closest to our church, that our church was trying to, to continue to build relationships with that school. And so as part of that, uh, this local newspaper gave me a press pass. They gave me two, one for me and one for somebody I wanted to take with me. A lot of times I took my brother or somebody from our church or, or, um, or something like that. And I can't tell you, okay, it's, it's, it's high school football, but I can't tell you the, the excitement it was or the little bit of thrill when you walk into a field and somebody stops you and says, hey, you're not supposed to go there. And you say, oh, really? And you have this little press pass. And they say, oh, well, go right ahead, right? Okay. And trust me, if that's how I get my thrills, I had a pretty sad life, okay? But, you know, those credentials, you know, as, as minors they may be, they let me walk out there and, and do the job that I've been asked to do. And, and when it comes to, to entering heaven, there is a standard of credentials that you and I have to have. There is something that has to be true in our lives in order for us to have the opportunity to enter eternity and to be in God's presence forever. And in our passage here in John chapter 3, we encounter this man, his name is Nicodemus. And when we look at him, by our standards, by the standards of, of humans, of people, we would look at him and say, well, if there's ever a man who had all the religious credentials one ever needed to gain eternity, it was going to be him. But he soon learns, as we will, that nothing he does can gain him heaven. Jesus reveals to Nicodemus man's greatest need, the credentials that are needed to gain eternal life. And what we learn from this passage is this, that because my religious motives and self-righteous acts cannot gain eternity, I must trust Jesus alone to experience new birth. You can have a lot of religious motives in your life. You can have a lot of, of, of good motives and a lot of re- good reasons of why you do what you do, but that won't gain you eternity. You can do a lot of good things. You can, you can go out and, and do all the good things that you feel like are on the good things checklist, right? You can go to church. You can give to church. You can help old ladies across the street. You can save cats out of trees. If that's a good thing, I don't know. But you can do all of these, these things that you're supposed to do But none of that gains us eternity. It only comes through Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus is a man that you'll soon find out. He's very consumed with the external. That's how he's lived his entire life. 
And he's no different than us. We, are, we live lives consumed with the external, but it's the internal, that the work that God has to do, that, that requires our belief and trust in him that matters the most. So let's break this passage apart this morning and see what happens here. In, in the first three verses here, we find this seeming righteousness that belongs to this man named Nicodemus. We read here in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we first meet the man. Now, understand this when you read, when you read your Bible. Uh, we have verses and we have chapters, right? You understand that verses and chapters aren't inspired by God. That those are things that have been placed back into the text to help us understand the text, right? Uh, I mean, we have in our, in our home um, a, a Bible that's written like a a set of books. It's kind of a cool thing, you know, you, you kind of begin to see, there's not tra- chapters and verses, it, it just reads like, a, like you would any other book. And, and that's, you know, the things we have here are very helpful, but sometimes they kind of muddy the waters, okay? So what you're reading in chapter 3, verse 1, is directly connected to what happened at the end of chapter 2. So at the end of chapter 2, you remember Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, and, and while he was there, he cleansed the temple, and then we read this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 23, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus went about throughout the Passover feast doing other works. We don't know what those are. John tells us at the end of John that Jesus did many other things. And if we were to write them all down, the the world would not contain the books that were to be written. So these are the kinds of things that Jesus was doing, probably healing people and those sorts of things that, that we see him doing throughout the Gospels. And we see that there were many people who were attracted to the signs that Jesus did. And they professed belief in him. But last week I, I mentioned to you and showed you that what, Jesus, what John shares with us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus knew about them. He knew their hearts. That these were not genuine conversions of their faith and trust in Jesus alone as the saving Messiah. No, they were awed by the signs and the wonders. They even believed in the power that they saw. But Jesus literally, it says, had no faith in their faith. He did not believe in them. And why is that? Because Jesus as God knows the heart of every person. He knows who has trusted in him and who hasn't. He knows uh, what, what each person holds deep inside where nobody else knows these things. And as we have seen in John before, miracles do not create faith. It does not happen. It is impossible for trust to be manufactured by signs and wonders. Instead, believing, seeking hearts, trust in Jesus because they they were already seeking him. They were already trusting in him. They were already seeing who he was. And those signs confirm that he is who he says he is. And therefore, their their belief is is, is completed. It's, It's helped by those things. But those things don't create that faith. They don't suddenly change course after seeing a miracle. Belief must come from a genuine realization of need. 
an agreement with God on the solution followed then by acting on God's prescribed solution. That, that's the path of belief. That, that, that yes, I have a need that I can't meet and God alone can meet. Agreeing with God on that and following through by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the path of true belief in him. And this account before us today shows us the greatest need of man that only is, that's met only in Jesus Christ. And it comes directly out of Jesus' actions in Jerusalem. It comes from a man that if we were going to choose, if we today got together here at Beaverton Baptist Church and we said collectively, okay, we got to pick one guy or one lady, we got to pick one person to represent us to Jesus, you and I would pick Nicodemus. If he was here today, if Nicodemus was here today, I probably wouldn't be the pastor of this church. Let's just put it that way, okay? Because outwardly, Nicodemus is that guy. Nicodemus is the guy that we would all look at and say, well, I mean, he's got it all together. He is so spiritual. He is so, he is so heavily minded. He, he, he follows everything that God says. But even this man cannot meet his own need, and Jesus shows him that and why he can't here. So let's talk about this man named Nicodemus. Why, why, did you, why, is he, why do you say he's so righteous? Well, Nicodemus, first, just an interesting thing, Nicodemus' name means victor over the people. Um, it's not a Jewish name. Nicodemus is actually a Greek name that's been transliterated into, into to Hebrew, into, and, and it became a, a common Jewish name in Nicodemus' day. John tells us about this man in verse 1. We read that he was a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are an elite religious party in Israel, part of the leadership, the, the, the religious leadership of the nation of Israel. Their name most likely comes from a Hebrew word, which means separated ones. That they were separating themselves unto God and, and, and for him. These were... Honestly, the theological conservatives of their day. There were two main larger sects of, of, uh, of Judaism, of, of, of the, the nation's religion there and worshiping God. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the more liberal of the two groups and the Pharisees were then considered conservative. And it was an elite group of people. There were only, as, as some authors record, only about 6,000 at one time of these men who were allowed into this, into this brotherhood. It was very elite. They adhered religiously to the written law of God. So all those things you find in the Old Testament, all those things you find in Leviticus, all those things you find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they did all those things. And then... They added oral law on top of it. They would redefine these things. And well, what does this mean? Or, or let's take it a step further. If that's righteous, then this is more righteous. Or what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath day? You know, if you do this, does this work or does that work? And they would begin to, 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 to parse all of these things and, and come up with all of these, th- these words. And, and so if you're familiar with the Gospels, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, and, and the Gospels in particular, there, there may be a word that you think of when you think of Pharisee. If you've grown up in church or you've been around long enough to hear the word Pharisee, then you might think this. You might think, well, Pharisee is the same as a hypocrite, right? How many of you, that's kind of the word association you get when you think of Pharisee. And that's understandable if, if you've read the Scriptures and you know that. But let me tell you something, that's not how the common person, so to speak, viewed a Pharisee in Jesus' day. No, they were viewed as religious elite. 
Throughout the life of Jesus, their legalism and trust in man-made things was exposed. But this was one who had given himself to righteous living. And so, so others saw that because to the Pharisee, religion was something that you externalized. The goal of one's existence, this is what a Pharisee believes, okay? The goal of my existence is to conform to the law of God. To do all the things that God has said. And if I do all the things God has said, then I'll be okay. I'll be right. In so doing, others around them, I mean, they look at them in awe. Now, it is well recorded that the Pharisees often look down on, again, I use this word, the common people, right? They, they were, even though they did that, they were actually very popular with the group, with the common people person, and they gave them great influence. So you have a smaller sect of this of the religious leadership that actually exercises great power within the, the hierarchy of the leadership of Israel. And so we read here, secondly, that Jesus is not only a Pharisee, but he is a ruler of the Jews. What that means is he's part of a council that was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men. And it was the ruling body of Israel under the Roman government. And so this, this, this council was presided over by the reigning high priest at the time. And it had wide-ranging authority in civil, criminal, and religious matters. Now, there was one thing, that, one major thing that was, was withheld from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had no power to administer capital punishment. That was, that was held only by the Roman government. But the Sanhedrin did have incredible power outside of this, and especially in the southern part of Israel known as Judea. Because what we read in Jesus' life is that when he was in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, uh, the Sanhedrin wasn't around much. So we we think it was really localized to that Judean area. So if we were going to pick anyone to represent man and his ability to gain good standing with God, it's going to be Nicodemus or somebody like him. Because from the outside, he is one that we would look at and marvel at his seeming righteousness. He does all the right things. He says all the right things. He doesn't do the things he's not supposed to do. He doesn't waste his time. He, he's always giving this outward experience, outward uh, picture, because he's, his relation, his, remember, his religion is externalized. But Nicodemus will soon learn there's a great need within his heart that he cannot meet and that no man can meet for himself. We see not only the man, but we also see an incomplete picture that Nicodemus has. In verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For there is no one, for no one can do these signs and that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. Here in verse 2, we read, at night. Now, we're not told why this is. And there's been numerous ideas thrown around over the years by the commentators. You know, it could be that Nicodemus wanted to avoid giving Jesus the seeming approval of the Sanhedrin by being seen conversing with him in the day. Again, Nicodemus is part of an elite council. He's already part of the, the Pharisees, and now he's part of the Sanhedrin. People know who Nicodemus is. And so people see Nicodemus talking to Jesus, and the Sanhedrin is starting to have some of this conflict with Jesus, then, then they may think, well, that's the, you know, he's gaining the approval of them. It also may be that he wanted to avoid the disfavor of the other members 
of the Sanhedrin who may have saw him conversing with Jesus. Still, it may be possible that at nighttime, and I think it's very likely at nighttime, it was simply the best time for a conversation like this with Jesus. Remember, what is Jesus doing throughout the day? He's doing these signs, he's performing these, these miracles, and there are people around. And at night, this is the time you're going to have to come and, and have extended conversation with Jesus. You know, we don't know the reason. But let me tell you something that I think we need to, to observe here. It, 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 what's important is that Nicodemus did come to Jesus. We don't know the reason why he chose the time he came, but we do know that he came. And he came wanting to know more about him. Though he would show a lack of truly understanding who Jesus is, he still came seeking answers. And and Jesus is the only one who can meet man's need and the only one who is worthy of our coming to him. And upon his arrival, we hear Nicodemus' view on Jesus. And that view that Nicodemus has is both very complimentary of Jesus, but it's also woefully short of who Jesus is. Notice the way he greets Jesus. He, he calls him rabbi. Now that title, rabbi, is a title of respect, identifying Jesus as a teacher. Do you remember hearing that title before in the book of John? In John chapter 1, there are two guys, Andrew and John, who would be the disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus and they address him by the same title. It's a title of respect. It's a title of, 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 of a position that they say, hey, you are a teacher of the things of God. Coming from Nicodemus, though, is worth way more on a, on a man's, man's economy from coming from Nicodemus than it is even from Andrew and John. Because Nicodemus is a man who is learned in the things of God. He is a Pharisee who keeps the law of God. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's trained. Jesus and his teachings at this point are still new to the scene in Israel. And if you were to look at the life of Jesus from a human perspective, you would see that he had no traceable training. See, rabbis would have a history of who they learned under and from whom they received training. You know, I was trained by so-and-so. You know, this is the, and people would know that. This would give them credence in the eyes of others. Jesus didn't have any of this. By the way, he didn't need it, right, because he's God. But, again, looking from a human perspective, he doesn't have any of that. And so for Nicodemus to come and to address him as rabbi, he's acknowledging something about Jesus. He's acknowledging what he's seen. He's addressing Jesus as an equal Because Nicodemus himself is a rabbi. Nicodemus himself is an expert on the law of God. And he is is referring to Jesus by that same title as one who is a teacher of these things. And then he recognizes the hand of God upon Jesus' teaching and his ministry. He addresses Jesus as a rabbi. Why? Because of what he has seen. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He has seen Jesus as one who has come directly from God, or or I should say from God. This does not mean that that Nicodemus is recognizing Jesus' heavenly origins. Okay, He is not saying, we know you're the son of God. What he's saying is, we recognize that that, that the hand of God is particularly on Jesus' ministry and his teachings. The signs that Jesus did wouldn't be possible without God's blessing and power present in his life. And in a sense, he's not wrong, right? 
Now, he's not entirely right either, but he's not wrong in the things that he's saying. Because Jesus isn't just a teacher blessed by the presence of God on his ministry. He is God himself. Throughout Jewish history, God sent messenger after messenger to his people. He sent prophets, and he sent teachers, and he sent leaders. I mean, think back on some of the the big ones that you know, men like Moses or Elijah or Elisha, right, or Joshua. Those are probably some of the four biggest names that come to our mind in this context. These were men who taught the things of God. These were men who gave the revelation of God as God gave to them to these people. And then they authenticated their message by miracles. Miracles that God did through their ministry. Jesus is not merely, though, another messenger. No, Jesus is the realization of everything that these prophets, teachers, and others pointed to. He is the culmination of all of that. Everything that Nicodemus knew from the Old Testament, and he knows a lot, the culmination of that is standing right in front of him. He is speaking to the Messiah. He is speaking to the Son of God. He is speaking to the one who can meet his greatest need. Nicodemus' words, though expressing curiosity, do not fully, though, express faith and trust in Jesus that is necessary to meet his need. But that, that is, will be shown by Jesus here, because in the next verse, in, in verse 3, Jesus answers an, unanswered, an unasked question. From Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, there's been no formal question, right? You kind of look at that and go, He didn't ask that. Yeah, he didn't. Now, Nicodemus' statements that he's made, in a way, are an unasked question about Jesus' authority. They're, they're, an, uh, they're a probing of, I mean, this is, this is what we're observing, right? Looking for confirmation. Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer that because Jesus doesn't answer to man, right? He goes instead for the heart of Nicodemus. He knows what's on this man's heart. He knows this man's need. Nicodemus, in his heart of hearts, like all humans, has a need. He has an unsatisfied soul. And Jesus informs him how that can be met. Jesus shares with Nicodemus a vitally important truth that's introduced here by this phrase, most assuredly, or or your Bible may say, truly, truly, or or verily, verily. This is a true thing. This is something that John uses over and over again, this statement throughout his gospel. He tells Nicodemus that there is no entrance into the kingdom of God unless one is born again. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he's telling him the requirement for one who would gain eternal life. What Jesus means here when he says that no one will see the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God means to experience eternal life and to participate fully in the kingdom of God at the end of the age. See, the kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule. And what Jesus is saying is that there is no entrance for anyone outside of the new birth. 
Jesus uses this word, this wording here again, unless one is born again. That word again is an interesting word because it can be translated a couple different ways. One of them is from above. And that carries the idea of coming from a higher place, such as heaven, one is born from above. But it also carries the idea that's translated here in your Bible of the idea of repetition from the same source, born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he will need rebirth in his life to enter God's kingdom. And that rebirth is the regeneration of God that comes about through Jesus, who is the source of all life. But we're going to see here that this phrase is confusing to Nicodemus as the conversation unfolds. And as always, Jesus takes one where he is and shows him the truth. You and I should be thankful that Jesus always meets us where we are. He doesn't leave us there. If we will continue to look into the word of God and we will continue to submit ourselves to learning from him, he will take us and he will transform us. He will show us what is needed in our lives. And that's exactly what he does here with Nicodemus. A man who should have known the truth of, he's going to show him the truth of man's greatest need, new life from God for eternity. In verses 4 through 8, Jesus unpacks this idea of supernatural rebirth. We see the confusion that takes place. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is, is taken aback by Jesus' statement. The fact that he must experience rebirth is already jarring because, you know, birth isn't something that you do to yourself already, right? That's kind of out of your control. He cannot fathom then what it means to be born again. Nicodemus, remember, remember this statement. Nicodemus is a man consumed with the physical. That's how he's lived his life, consumed with externalizing his, his religion. So he only thinks physically. He doesn't, always, he doesn't think spiritually and internally. He really struggles with that, as do many of us. He physically sought to keep the law of God. He had further physical expectations that were laid on him by his rabbis over the years. He has sought to physically earn his place with God and dwell in God's good graces. And so the only way he knows to think is physical, and this causes a problem. Because Nicodemus is a grown man. He cannot physically do what Jesus talks about. There are no returns and redos, okay? And he says to Jesus, how is this so? That is literally impossible. And that's when Jesus begins to unfold for Nicodemus and for us the truth that it's not physical rebirth that is needed, but spiritual. The questions of man's heart and the questions of his eternal security cannot be answered in the physical world by man. They can only be answered by God. And there is great exclusivity in these things. What you find when Jesus starts talking in verse 5, you find that the way to God and the way to heaven is very exclusive. Over the years, there have been many who have conjured up supposed ways into eternity. Countless world religions have presented myriads of paths to their version of God or the afterlife. And Jesus shares that eternity is accessible by only one way. There are not many ways to God and his kingdom. There is only one. And here, Jesus states that. 
Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born, Jesus says, of water and Spirit. Now, this is, again, is a phrase that I just want to take a couple minutes and, and really help us understand what does this phrase mean? Because I've heard this phrase much of my life. You know, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And, 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 and frankly, uh, even have wrestled and wondered even the past week, well, what does that mean? You know, start to look at these things. Because over the years, some have seen water in this phrase to refer to physical natural birth. Really what, 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 what they interpret water as to refer to the amniotic fluid which breaks shortly before childbirth. You know, my wife is a nurse and we were talking about this passage this week. You know, she goes, we still call it when your, when your water, thank you, I knew the ladies would help me with that one, when your water breaks, right? But as you look throughout scripture, you find that that picture is not seen elsewhere. That, that doesn't refer to to physical birth. Also, if you go back to the Greek, okay, this whole phrase is connected. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, not born of water and of the Spirit. It's not talking about two different things. It's talk, there's a connection here. Second, some have looked at water and interpreted it as Christian baptism. That, that the way to salvation is not just to, to, to have God's work in your life, but then you have to be baptized. Can I just put it very bluntly? That is fast and loose with the text. That's all there is, okay? That is, that is playing very dangerous games with the word of God because God's word does not speak about that anywhere else. And also, remember the context in which this conversation took place. There is no such thing as Christian baptism when Jesus talks. We're not gonna, we don't participate here in eisegesis reading back into the text, but exegesis reading from the text. And so, very simply, that cannot be true. Now, baptism is not needed for eternal life, but it is a sign of salvation from sin. It's an outward testimony to others of an inward choice made to to place faith in Jesus Christ. And it is something that a Christian, in order to live in obedience with God, should do and must do in order to be right with God in, 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 in an obedience stand, but not from a salvation standpoint. Now, still others claim this is a reference to the baptism of John the Baptist. If you'll remember back to the book of John, if, you, if you've been with us, um, you, you, would, you would remember that John was baptizing people out in the wilderness, and his baptism was one of repentance. People would repent from their sin, preparing their hearts for the Messiah, because that was John's job, and they would get baptized as a sign of, I am repenting from my sin. That's all it was. And, and admittedly, you know, at, at outward glance, that's a very attractive thing because, well, of course, I mean, in order to be right with God, you're going to have to repent of your sin, right? So, so that must be what he's talking about. But I want to call your attention that who Jesus is speaking to here. Jesus is speaking to a learned scholar of Israel, one who knew the Old Testament. At the end of this passage in verse 10, Jesus again says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Again, calling to mind the things that, 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 that um, Nicodemus knows from his time learning the Old Testament and his ignorance of those things. And so for John's baptism and what it represented here to be the focus it would have to be assumed that when Jesus said you need to be born of water, that Nicodemus' mind is automatically going to go to this guy who's been out in the desert for the last couple of years baptizing people. And I just don't think that's feasible. I just don't think that that's, that's a normal conclusion that he's going to come to, especially given his Old Testament background. And so what does it mean? Well, 
throughout the Old Testament, God promises his coming spirit. And he speaks of water, symbolically referring to spiritual renewing and cleansing. Isaiah 44, verse 3, God wrote this through the prophet Isaiah, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. In Zechariah 13.1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So this, this picture of water has been used to talk about uh, uh, cleansing from sin throughout the Old Testament. And, and it, there are a couple other passages. These are just two I pulled out this week. But you come to, a, to one great passage where God is speaking about the restoration of his people. And, and I believe, as many commentators believe, that, that this is the passage Jesus has in mind here. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 36. And it says this, starting verse 24. For I, will take, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Here's the basic thing. Regeneration and new birth is not a new concept that Jesus introduced. It's talked about, especially here in this passage in the Old Testament. It was predicted that one day it would come. And so the new birth that Jesus is requiring, what does it come from? It comes from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Do you know what God uses in your life to show you your sin? He uses His Word. Do you know what God uses to give you new life? Through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, he uses his word. He used his word then, he uses his word now. And so, this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and what is true today. That the word of God convicts us of sin, and the Holy Spirit uses us to show us our need of salvation and our need of regeneration, and to see that there is no hope for eternal life without the Spirit's working through God's word. And just as the way to Jesus is exclusive through God's word and his spirit, the production of what is spiritual and exclusive is exclusive to that which is spiritual. Look in verse 6. Jesus says this, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What Jesus says here is that like produces like. Now, in families, that's very obvious. You ever looked at a family, you know, and you're like, Oh, I can see where they got those looks from, right? It's like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, right? What Jesus is saying here, Nicodemus has lived a life of external physical conformity, but all of that conformity could do was produce outward fleshly works. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about true spiritual transformation. The spiritual condition of man can only be changed by the Holy Spirit of God. It is very exclusive. Let's do it this way. You were born a human because your parents are human. You were born with a sin problem because guess what? Your parents have a sin problem. 
And God alone can give you life because God alone is the source of eternal life. So therefore, since like produces like, Jesus says in verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The word of God never taught that righteousness comes through works, but through faith in God alone. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis, to this man named Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him before. And it tells us that what was counted unto Abraham for righteousness, his faith was counted to him for righteousness, his belief and his trust in God. Now, the things he did after that showed who he trusted in and who he believed in. But what was counted to him for his new life was his belief in God alone. It is only logical that to enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, one must be born again. And so we have to come to this realization in our lives that there are a lot of things that you and I can be wrong about, but we can still go to heaven. There are a lot of theological things that you and I can be wrong about and still go to heaven. What do you mean by that? Well, you can be wrong about God's doctrine of election and how it works with man's free will, and you can still go to heaven. You can be wrong about the last things and when the rapture will take place and when the millennial kingdom will begin, and you can still go to heaven. You can be wrong about what spiritual gifts are still exercised in the church today and which ones aren't, and you can still go to heaven. You can be wrong about church governments and how they should function, and you can still go to heaven. But you know what? You cannot be wrong about how to gain entrance into the kingdom of God and still go to heaven. You have to get that right. (laughs) That's why this passage is so important. You you cannot be wrong about this most important and vital point, that entrance into God's kingdom comes only through an act of God in your life. If you think that you'll earn your way into heaven, that you'll pay off sin in purgatory, that you'll have a second life to make it right, or anything else that relies on you, then my friend, very simply, you're wrong. If you don't believe that you must be born again, through the work of God's spirit and his word in your life, you're not going to heaven. You say, well, I don't like what you said. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Jesus said the way to heaven is very exclusive. It's the most exclusive thing we have. And it comes only through new birth, through the Holy Spirit of God and God's word. Like produces like. And it's exclusive. The flesh produces sinful, broken, condemned people. Fleshly works may produce outward conformity or even reformed actions. We can look at a man like Nicodemus, or you can look at someone who does good things and say, well, the outside looks so great, but the inside isn't changed. Nicodemus did a lot of good things. He did a lot of right things. He did a lot of, dare we even say, godly things, right? But he was not changed. He was just conforming. Only God can create a new heart and bring about this amazing work in our lives. And that is seen through his spirit working our lives. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes 
and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is God's working in our lives. When, when God is working in the life of a person, it's very evident. Jesus uses an illustration to show us how God does this work. He talks about the wind in comparison with the Spirit. Very interesting, by the way, how the Greek text works. The word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word, pneuma. Okay? Think of, uh, by the way, a word we get from that, pneumonia. Okay? Um, it has that P in front of it that we don't know why it's there, but it is. Right? That's the word here, pneuma. Or, pneumonia is not the word. Okay? Don't, don't, remember eisegesis? Don't read that back into the text. Okay? But the word is pneuma, meaning wind or spirit. And Jesus used it here, refer to the wind that blows and the spirit of God, the, the third member of the Trinity that works in the lives uh, of people. You and I can control a lot of things in life. I've said this before. We can't control the weather. We especially can't control the wind. One of the things I learned about when I moved to Beaverton, Michigan, is we get a lot of wind. Okay? And I got this lesson vividly illustrated for me last winter, last December. Um, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of December, we had a lot of wind here. I mean, we're talking 40, 50-mile-an-hour winds. And uh, it, was, it went on for a couple days. It was, it was violent, really. And yes, I mean, afterwards, you can look out and see what happened. I mean, you could look out the back of our church, and you would see the siding that had been ripped off the back of the church. But I got an illustration in the middle of it as I was trying to make it across the parking lot without blowing away. I look out here, we have this um, Awana sign. It's on a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. Okay, you ever tried to lift a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood? I mean, they're pretty heavy, right? And that plywood is like this. I mean, just horizontal with the ground, right? It's not, it's not down here. It's like this. And, and it's like, wow, that's some strong wind. Well, yeah, then it rips it off, and I went out there to get it, and, you know, that was not a good idea, okay? Because as long as you're standing one way, it's okay, but then you had to turn, right? It ripped my favorite hooded sweatshirt because I, tur- I turned that thing. It was like a sail. I was just flying across the parking lot there trying not to smash the glass windows on the way in. The wind is a very powerful thing, but we can't see it, right? You can't hold it. You can't feel it, right? We have bottled water, but you don't have bottled oxygen, right? You just, it just kind of, or, or wind, it, it just, it's there. It's, it's, it's a very um, great and strong force. The wind is powerful. It is invisible, but its effects are extremely visible to us. The Holy Spirit is invisible, but very real. And the effects that he has on a life are visible indeed. The conviction that the Holy Spirit brings on your heart that is in need of rebirth is tangibly felt. If you have ever felt the conviction of sin of God on your life, you know that. You don't see it, but you feel those effects. The effects that he has on the life of one who has been reborn into the family of God are readily observed. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You look at the life of someone who knows God, especially if you knew them before they came to the Lord, you say, man, something's different. Yeah, the Holy Spirit of God is working in that person's life. And it's amazing. When someone comes to know the Lord, you know, I think we're tempted sometimes that, well, we need to walk them through the 12-step program on how to be a good little Christian, you know, and come to our church. You know, discipleship is what God has commanded. But you know who needs to do that work? God needs to do that work in their lives. You'd be amazed at what God does in the life of people who've come to him. 
If you know the Lord as Savior, it should lead you to new actions, new attitudes, new behaviors, new ways you handle your problems in life. Why? Because that's part of the new birth. The evidence should be there. The changing work of the Spirit affirms that you belong to God. So when you experience his conviction over sin, Christian, how do you respond? When you, as a believer, are convicted by God through his word that you have, you're doing something that, that disobeys your new father, your heavenly father, how do you respond to that conviction? We should respond with submission to him, seeking his ongoing change in our hearts. If you have ever felt the conviction of God in your life and have never responded by placing your faith in Jesus, you are still called to do so. And let me make this clarification, okay? Conviction is not the same as salvation or sanctification. Just feeling bad or guilty or even condemned for sin is not the same as confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or is not the same as restoring your relationship with God as a Christian who's been walking in disobedience. Those are not the same thing. You can feel convicted about a lot of things, but not do anything with them. Right? You can feel convicted, Dad, that you need to spend less time at the office and more time with your kids. But just because you feel convicted about it doesn't mean you're going to do anything about it, right? I mean, how many times have we had that conversation about something that we need to change physically in our lives? And we say, well, I know I should be doing it, right? And we, we give ourselves a reason, right? Well, I mean, this is why I haven't done it. This is why... And how many times has someone else looked at you and said, I mean, that's great, but when are you actually going to do something with it? The same is true in our spiritual life. Just because God's convicted you doesn't make you right with God. What are you going to do with that? Are we going to submit ourselves to God and what he says, or are we just going to continue on hoping it goes away? We have a responsibility to respond to God's work. And we see Nicodemus's, as we tie things up today, we see Nicodemus's reply in verses 9 through 10. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? We see the spiritual incompleteness of Nicodemus's life. There's a question here of plausibility. Nicodemus is taken aback by what he's just heard, and, and he's again in shock. He hears all of these things, and once again, he wonders how these things are so. I have to give Nicodemus a little bit of credit here, because he asks the same question twice. How can these things be? He doesn't put his, slam his fist down and say, that's unbelievable. I can't believe that you would say that. That's wrong. He just wants to know, how does that work? How do I understand this? How does this happen? He doesn't understand. Because he is a man who his entire life has been anchored in the physical He believed that he would grasp the goodness and graciousness of God by his actions. And now, that in just a few short sentences, that entire life view has been turned on its head and dumped right back in his lap. This is what you've believed your entire life. None of it's true. This is what's true. Jesus has answered his heart's most burning question, how to secure his eternity and find life in God. And that hope is standing before him, for there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. But it seems, it seems like it's been a little much for the system in Nicodemus' life. 
He still doesn't understand what salvation is and what it means. So, so Jesus is going to call him out for this question with a question to answer Nicodemus' question. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus often answered questions with questions. He would draw out people by asking these things. And here, Jesus shows Nicodemus that there is a failure on his part as a teacher in Israel. He knew the word of God, and he knew the law of God better than most, and yet he failed to realize the truth of, how it and how, uh, of, the truth of it and how it applied to his life. He was a teacher of others, yet he himself needed to be taught. The Old Testament was not without references of the Messiah and his coming work. That's what Jesus was saying. You you know what the Old Testament says, but you've missed what it's trying to tell you. It was not silent about the eventual goal of God's work and his people. Indeed, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 said this, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, God's external laws communicated to his people his holiness and their sinfulness. But their ultimate design was to show the sinfulness of man and the fullness of the promised Savior. As Paul would later write to his protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 15, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about primarily the Old Testament because, uh, uh, because that would have been the major part of scripture. That would be the scripture that Paul knew. Which are what? Able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says that they're pointing to Jesus Christ. Nicodemus was a man consumed with externals. He had done and said all the right things. He had put the time and the effort into everything he believed would make him righteous and acceptable to God, but he was still dissatisfied. The actions that he performed still left him with more questions, and the feeling of self-righteousness was still colored with guilt. And in Jesus, he was challenged with that that, that which he was missing. He was missing a work that only God could bring about in his life. He was missing man's greatest need. Rebirth. Being born again into the kingdom of God. And the agent who would bring that about was standing before him, God in human form. He showed Nicodemus the necessity of that birth. And next time, We will see the discourse that Jesus gives about this new life offered himself. But what we see today is that because my religious motives and self-righteous acts cannot gain eternity, I must trust Jesus alone to experience new birth. As humans, you and I, we have a lot of needs. We have physical needs to get through the the daily routine, right? We have mental and emotional needs to help us function. But the greatest need we have is spiritual. And in order to experience true peace with God and secure our eternity, we need new birth that's offered only through Jesus. And when, when it comes to salvation from sin, and when it comes to its penalty that's in Jesus, their salvation from the penalty of sin, that, that, that salvation only found in Jesus Christ alone, there are several ways to respond to that. You can respond in confusion, and I think that's, 
been Nicodemus' response so far. You know, he's just confused and bewildered by what he's heard. He could not wrap his mind around that. The Word of God can help us further understand these things because confusion is never an excuse for not responding to God. You could also respond with fear, and I think that fear is also accompanied by anger. Because there's this fear that people say, hey, you know, if I come to Jesus, man, my life's going to change and I'll never get to do the things I want to do anymore. You know, the truth is, I think you're right. If you come to Jesus, there will be things that when you come to Christ, you don't do anymore. Places you don't go anymore and sin that you don't tolerate anymore because you belong to him. That's part of his work in you changing you. And I'll be the first to tell you that you might feel that way now. You feel like, man, I'm going to miss that. And that's why I don't go to Jesus. That's why I don't turn to him. But as God works in your heart, drawing himself to you, he's going to change you. And a Christian genuinely growing in the Lord and the things of God will continue to develop a distaste and a disdain for sinful things. I cannot tell you the number of people I have talked to who, who God saved out of things that, that, we, that the world values. And that People would say, well, I would miss that. And they say, I don't miss it a bit. Because I was held fast in the sin and its grip. And now I'm free. A Christian trying desperately to hold on to sin, though, is a Christian who is severely mistaken of what it means to know God. Still, you may also respond to God in apathy. You sit here today, you you hear these words, you say, I've heard this message a thousand times. I could tell you before you even open the passage where this was going. You've heard what God says, and you know what? You just don't care. Why should it bother you? You have time. You know what? Maybe I'll find another way. Maybe you're wrong, preacher, and maybe, I'll find, maybe I'm not as bad as you think I am. Again, I didn't tell you that. God did, all right? To you, my friend, I would remind you that we don't know how much time we have. It doesn't matter what you think. God's truth doesn't change on the other side of eternity, and it'll be too late. All of these things if left unchecked, will lead you to one ultimate and horrible response, and that is rejection. Because to not accept God is to reject him. To claim neutrality on the things of God is rejection of God. The response to God isn't maybe, it's yes or no. And so that brings us to the one response that will gain you eternity, the one decision that will grant you entrance into God's kingdom, and that is faith in Jesus for salvation and experience of the new birth. You cannot enter new life without new birth. You can't experience fellowship with God without his supernatural working in your life. And this new birth gives you new life. And that new life is then governed by new principles. And I want to say to to those who belong to God here today, God has expectations for his children. I don't know if you ever heard this growing up. you, You go out there tonight and have a good time, but remember what your last name is, right? You ever heard that? I see some moms looking at their kids in here like, I have said that a lot. And it's not this sense of fear and dread, but it's a sense of belonging. 
And that's the same thing with our Christian life. If you belong to God, this is what it looks like. This is what those... God doesn't call us to live conformed to a set of man-made outward rules. No, he's calling us to something greater than that. He calls us to living by his spirit, submitting everything in our lives to him, that we can honor him. And if you know him as your savior, do you live that way? Do you live ever committed to giving every relationship or opportunity and possession to him to be used of him? Because he deserves nothing less. And so as we look at this passage today and we reflect on the the amazing uh, gift that God has given us in the new birth, let us find new life in God and live that life in him each and every day. Father, we thank you so much for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the time we've had to be in your house today, just consumed with worship of you and your word. We thank you for new birth in Jesus Christ. We thank you for making it so clear and plain that there is no other but through Jesus Christ. God, I want to pray today for two different people who sit in this room or hear this message. First, let us pray, Lord, I want to pray for the one who is struggling with what it means to have a relationship with you. They have heard the truth from your word. Or maybe they're angry, maybe they're fearful, maybe they're apathetic, but they've said no, no, no. Lord, would you convict their heart of sin and draw them to yourself? Would you show them their need of a Savior? And may they find the joy of new birth in you. Lord, again, I I pray secondly today for Christians who are here today or hear this message. Lord, would you again just fill us with the awe and wonder of Jesus and what he's done? Would you help us to see that even after salvation, godliness isn't a set of rules. It isn't a set of physical things that we do. Yes, it comes out in our physical actions, but it has to start in our hearts. It has to come from your word. And only then can we see our outward actions changed. And only then can we continue to live in the freedom of your grace. Lord, would you do your great work in our hearts today? May we truly go out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your word proclaimed and your Holy Spirit has done a mighty work in us. In your name we pray, amen.